Hello and welcome to another episode of The Coder Crew with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Kevin Holditch. Kevin is the head of platform engineering at Form3. Form3 is a fintech company which is making serious waves across the industry. Long-time listeners may recall Sam Cox was one of the first guests on this podcast and he is a recruiter at Form3. So if you want to hear more about their process of how they recruit people, then definitely go back and listen to Sam's episode. I believe it's episode two or three. Kevin joins us today to discuss his story about how he got into tech and then more specifically platform engineering. We also as well talk about the difference between contract and permanent jobs, which the debate about whether you should be a contract or a permanent professional is a really strong debate and I get asked about it all the time. So it was really exciting to talk about it on the show, but we're going to also produce some more contract uh, contract versus permanent uh, content over time because I think it will be very useful for the community at large. I just want to quickly also say, please do join our Discord. It's where a lot of our discussion happens and you can potentially ask questions live on the show. Uh, also as well, we do have a Patreon. If you're interested in contributing, then uh, you can find a link to that in the description. Also, please remember that as a relatively small podcast, it really makes a huge difference to us if you are able to share it. If you particularly enjoyed it, it is really amazing and absolutely makes our day when people do that. But for now, it's time to grab a coffee, push those commits and enjoy the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks, Cam. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. Thanks. Not bad. It is a sunny Friday in Scotland. So what's not to love? We don't get too many of those. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, It's a sunny Friday here in Cambridge as well. So it's all good. Very nice. Very nice. Um, So for listeners who aren't familiar with you, do you want to give it a bit of a background in who you are and who you currently work for and what role you do? Yeah, sure. So my name's uh, Kevin Holditch. I work for a company called Form3. So what Form3 do is um, we make it easier for banks to connect to payment schemes. So effectively what a payment scheme is, is a way that um, a mechanism for banks to move money um, between each other. So let's say, Cam, you bank with like HSBC and I bank with Barclays. If you want to send me £10, then Barclays need a way to sort of tell HSBC, hey, Cam wants to send Kevin £10. HPC need a way to form going, yep, yeah, we know about Kevin, we've got his account details. And then once that payment's agreed or accepted, the banks need then a way to actually physically move the money. Now, that all sounds very simple, but the problem is there's many incarnations of that um, process, which is known as a payment scheme. So in the UK, probably people are familiar with FBS and BACs. So BACs are typically the way your salary is paid or the way you pay you know, utility bills. And uh, FPS is when you ping someone, the money goes instantly, uh, which is happening more and more nowadays. Even if you just take those two payment schemes in particular, even though they solve that same problem, moving money between banks, they work in totally different ways. So like what message format do they use? How do you connect to them? How to handle errors? How do the flows work, etc. When all the banks really need to care about is, did the payment work? Yes, I need to book it. Or did the payment not work? And then I don't book it and don't debit the money or don't credit the money. Now, what Form3 do is we are integrated into all those payment schemes on our back end, and we provide a single unified API that abstracts all of that complication away to our customers. So now a bank can integrate with us once, and they get all the payment schemes in one integration. So we can now take a, a bank to market in like typically 10 to 12 weeks, where in the past it would have taken banks, say, a year or longer in some cases per payment scheme, because in, in many cases you had to provision your own infrastructure and write all your own code, and it's a really big sort of build out. 
So that is the sort of what Form 3 do. And I've been at Form 3 since almost the beginning. I was like the fourth engineer to join shortly after the other three. And we worked on the first few products. Um, so I was, I'm a software engineer at heart. That's what I've been doing all of my career. But then as the company's grown, I've taken on different roles at Form 3. So I then moved over and started creating some of the Euro products. We integrated onto the Euro schemes. And then about two and a half years ago, I took after... I took on a role looking after the platform. So that is really being responsible for um, the shape of the platform in the cloud and all of the technology that goes with that. And the most recent um, project that we're trying to take on is to scale our platform to run across multiple clouds at the same time. So I know we're not going to get into technical detail on this podcast. Um, that's obviously quite a challenge. And we're sort of breaking new ground over there by sort of doing that. And sort of the rough architecture is having a Kubernetes cluster in each of the three big clouds. So Amazon, Google, and Azure. Networking them all together using our own data centers. And then running uh, workloads active, active, active across all three. Uh, so it's really exciting stuff uh, going on at Form3. Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of uh, a lot of different areas being touched there, and um, are a lot of your just out of curiosity, a lot, a lot of your customers like challenger banks. Uh, is that your main base? Because uh, I, I guess they would need the infrastructure. Yeah, that's a great question. So when we started, that was our target market. So one of our famous customers is N twenty six, which is kind of the mm-hmm. Monzo of Europe, um, and and customers like that. But then. It, um, the pendulum sort of switched around two and a half, three years ago, where a lot of the tier one high street banks um, wanted to move to the cloud. And so they, even though they're already integrated into all these payment schemes, they were managing all the connections separately. And they were like, actually, we could throw all that away, stop managing data centers, connections, all of that infrastructure, and just move to form free as part of our move to the cloud. So we're actually starting to onboard a lot of the um, tier one high street banks that probably everyone everyone knows um so we actually now have both sets customers both the challenger banks and the traditional high street banks interesting yeah that's uh, that's um cool to hear about and we'll definitely dig further into that uh, later in, in the pod but um to get started as well uh, what i like to do with, with guests so the audience can get to know them a bit better i fire off some quick fire questions if that's all right by you um yeah. always some interesting answers come out of this one uh first one probably my favorite question is what was your first ever computer first ever computer mm. was an Amiga A500, if anyone can remember one of those. And So that were, would have been, is that late 80s? Or my, uh, my I advert? think it was like early 90s. Mm. It had a keyboard. It had this um, sort of operating system called Workbench. It had games, but the good games used to come on floppy disks. Yeah. So I always remember when I first got um, copy of Street Fighter 2 that I could put at home because that was my favourite arcade game but it came on like 5 or 6 floppy disks so you had to put in them one after the other and it literally took about 20 minutes to load up and then depending on what character you chose you had to put a different disk in the drive so you know people today who play games on their iPad it loads instantly they don't know they're born <laughs> Worth it though, to be fair. Street Fighter Two still holds up today, and it's yeah. quality. It's like it's older than me, I think. It's like it's it's over thirty. Like it is yeah. So <laughs> I built my own custom arcade machine um, with a Raspberry Pi in it, and I've made the cabinet up to look like Street Fighter Two. Oh, that's so cool! You have you posted a picture of that on LinkedIn or anything? Because I think that will go down well. Um, I can dig one out and I'll send it to yeah. you after the show. Yeah. That's really cool. 
how long did it take to build? Because that, that sounds like quite a project. That was a home project. It probably took me around sort of three or four weeks of evenings. Um, so I ordered the, sort of the cabinet parts off the internet and put it all together myself and did all the wiring, ordered all the actual controls you find in arcade machines from like um, Japan. So I had like the authentic stuff in there. Um, so it actually feels like you're playing a proper arcade machine with the joystick and the buttons. They all light up and everything. That's really cool. That's really cool. So talking of um, geography and, and locations, actually, what, what's your favourite ever tech city? Because you're, you're based not in London, but near London, right? So I'm, I'm based in, in Cambridge. I have to say I'm a bit biased, but I'd say Cambridge is one of my favourite tech cities. So I'm quite lucky that we had, um, I think Microsoft came here. We're one of the first cities in the UK to get Microsoft and Google and people like that. Amazon do a lot of research here on their kind of drone technology. Um, and actually Cambridge was famous for, um, uh, well, um, Sinclair were here when they made Sinclair computers. The original BBC computer was all made in Cambridge. So I think Cambridge has got a lot of tech history that maybe some people aren't aware of. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's a really underrated tech city, Cambridge, I think, with uh, a lot of the big tech companies that are, are there. And there's also loads of really interesting startups i guess any kind of like great university city is always gonna is always gonna have a good tech scene i think um obviously because you know cambridge university needs no introduction so i think uh, a lot of stuff coming out of there plus the big tech i mean it's uh, it's a good place to be plus you're so close to london as well it's um yeah and and it's a really nice really nice place yeah exactly i think you've kind of got the best of both worlds here because cambridge like you said is a really nice city it doesn't feel built up or really metropolitan because it's it's in control of by the university. So they own a lot of the grounds in around it. So there's a lot of greenery. Mm. It feels very, almost like you're in the country and you're in the city. And then it's only like 40 minutes on the train to London. So if you need to get to London, you can very easily. So Yeah, best of both worlds. It's weirdly a little bit like Edinburgh, I find. Um, although a bit warmer most of the time and rains less. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. And um, so when, when, you're, when you're working, um, what type of music do you like to listen to? Uh, I like to listen to music that hasn't really got lyrics so I tend to listen to things like chilled like our beef albums chilled drummer bass stuff music for concentrations random stuff on spotify i tend to just um search on spotify for playlists in and around those kind of genres and put it on so it'll just be in the background whilst i'm working although i have to say um Definitely in the last year, I'm in meetings so much that I don't get to listen to music as much as I used to be able to. Yeah, um, drum and bass is a good one to to go to, I find. And uh, weirdly, a lot of the like old um, old Clubland albums I find mm-hmm. <laughs> actually really good to listen to as well. Um, like just they're so energetic and uh, just uh, yeah, uh, I'm the same. No, too many lyrics is too much. Yeah, I think things like that, like the Cafe Del Mar stuff with IB for like the chilled IB for sunset stuff is really good because you can have it in the background. It's got a little mm. bit of a kick to it, but it's not like overwhelming because um, I find that anything that's got a lot of lyrics in, you find yourself just sort of singing along to lyrics and it's really distracting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm definitely the same with that. If I'm if I'm feeling very cool and edgy, then I'll listen to like Tech House. And if I don't care, if I'm feeling a bit, uh, if I, if I'm not self conscious, I'll blast the club land while I'm working for sure. <laughs> and um, what what about when you like to do, do you work? We you say you're an early bird or night owl. I'm definitely an early bird. So um, I've got sort of two young kids, so they get me up super early anyway. <laughs> um, but I typically try and start my day 
maybe a bit earlier than some of my colleagues realise. So hopefully they're not they're not listening to this. So you can kind of get an hour or two's work done before you know the Slack traffic and the Zoom meetings start. Um, so I really appreciate that, and then trying to finish a bit earlier as well to get a bit of time with the kids before they go to bed. Yeah, I th- I've I've noticed that the vast majority of people, whether they're because the main two types of guests on here are engineers and recruiters, almost everyone, like eighty percent, um, are uh, are early birds, and recruiters are one hundred percent early birds. Interestingly enough, um, but uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, I I think people have realised that like working late into the night just isn't isn't really good for you compared to like getting up early, getting early to bed. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I've gone through that transition myself recently. Like, um, I was I was really bad for it. particularly when lockdown hit. I was really bad for just getting out of bed at like five to nine. Um, but I've recently, uh, like, for the last sort of few months, I've had sort of challenge of getting out of bed by seven a.m. Uh, each day, and it just it just sorts you out. Like, I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and eventually work to five a.m., but that's a bit of an ask. <laughs> I think it can breed a bit of a vicious um, circle as well. Because if you start going to bed late, getting up late. Then the next night you go to bed mm. even later. And then before you know it, you're because that's what I used to do at uni, sort of thing. Before you know it, you're getting up at midday, and it feels like half the day is gone. And it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, I think my darkest moment at uni was waking up at five thirty p.m. Uh, one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually did eventually reset it by um, I stayed up all night, got into the gym for when it opened at seven a.m. Um, did a gym session just so I knew I would completely like be knackered that night. And then um, just just like try to stay awake through the whole day, just smash the caffeine, and then collapsed at about ten pm. And I think that was finally how I sorted out my sleep cycle. Probably ruined it about a week later, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and uh, what what about um, before the days of getting into technology? When when you were a kid playing Street Fighter Two, um, what what job did you want? I actually I grew up grew up sort of loving football, so I kind of wanted to be a footballer. Um, as a lot of me and my friends did. But I actually got into computers from a very young age and I sort of saw myself as being a software engineer. So I used to tinker around with uh, code. Mm. Um, I even remember in my early days at college, um, me and my friend wrote a a version of Pac-Man and the teacher actually told us off because they thought that we were just playing computer games on the school's computer. And it took us a while to explain to them we'd written this game ourselves um so yeah i just had a real passion for how stuff worked and and writing software that's really cool what what did you use to write uh, to write the pac-man game it was written in a language called turbo pascal if anyone can remember that i've heard of so, pascal yeah so it's like um what delphi uses for the like that's like more than the ui modern version of it but mm-hmm. so it's like a fairly old language fairly basic i think in the first version i i used um, you couldn't do sort of forward declarations of functions. So you could only use functions that you declared. So you had to write your code in a certain order. And mm-hmm. then I think a new version came out where you could then write the code in any order. But it was still sort of very laborious. So you ended up yeah. with like a massive file. Um, so yeah, th- those were kind of the good old mm-hmm. days of coding, if you like. Um, so it was like all... cascading, like you could only... So if I declare a function on line 17, I can't use it on line 12. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then there was a way to, maybe I'm wrong on that. There is a way, there was a way to then forward declare your function. So you could say, but you'd have to write the very start, there's a function called foo. Okay. I'm going to declare it somewhere. And then you had to declare it. And then you could backwards to use it. But it was like very clunky to use. And obviously you didn't have 
you know, Stack Overflow and Google <laughs> like you do today. So if you come up against a problem, you just literally have to work it out yourself or look at a book. So I remember some of the early examples we did of having to write, um, you know, uh, converters that would convert from decimal to binary and back again. And you just literally had to work it out on a piece of paper how to do it and write the program till it worked because there was no sort of shortcuts. I, 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 when I hear stuff like that, I'm so grateful I learned to code in 2018, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, but I mean, I guess it's character building, but pff, that is tough. Uh, I, I cannot imagine life without, without Stack Overflow, I've got to, I've got to say. Yeah, and I think Stack Overflow is really good and it does sort of speed up development. But I think it's important to uh, understand what the answer is saying. So I think it's okay to use someone's solution from Stack Overflow, but I don't think you just copy it verbatim without understanding it. You should yeah. look at the code and really understand what it's doing. And that's how you learn. Um, but I'm not sure some people have that approach. I think some mm. people just copy and paste stuff around. And, and yeah, that's where that's where it's hard to sort of further yourself as an engineer. So maybe some of those early, um, you know, pain I had trying to work out how to write binary converters and solve these problems by hand actually put me in good stead for the future. Mm. It w that would make a lot of sense. And I would say the, um, the kind of 2022 equivalent of that is, um, particularly for listeners who are still very much, I mean, obviously everyone's always learning to code because it's a perpetual thing. But if you're trying to get your first job and you're, you're working on tutorials and stuff, like a really important tip I would give people is that um, one of the best ways to make sure a concept has, has stuck uh, is if you, there's usually an example in a tutorial, which is typically like um, a to-do list or something like that. If instead you make a different product or, or tool uh, using uh, using the same technique or concept, then that's how you know you grasped it. And uh, if you make it specific to something you're interested in as well, like I'll often make mine like rugby or music related or something, um, and then that can uh, that no that means that I know it's personal to me. It stops me copying code, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a good way of approaching it. I find um, it's not quite the same as like digging in and, and figuring every single minutia out yourself, but it's a nice kind of mi middle point of uh, being able to understand, prove to yourself almost that you understand the concept instead of because it is tempting to just copy and paste code. Like it's yeah, so tempting. I, I would completely agree with that. Or if you're building a to do app. Uh, follow the tutorial, build the app, and then go, right, now I'm going to add some more features. So now I'm going to save the to-do list to a database. Mm. So when I come back, it remembers it. Or, you know, challenge yourself to extend, like when the tutorial finishes, extend it and add some features. So then you need, really need to understand the code and that will prove you did. Yeah. What I like about um, your approach there as well is like um, when I've, um, back in the day when I, when I was a technical recruiter and I hired juniors, I would love to give people a chance. And they're coming out of boot camps. A lot of the time people have the exact same projects. Uh, so for, particularly if someone's in a boot camp, if you can extend those standard projects to, uh, to show that you understand the concept and you go the extra mile, you're, you're going to differentiate yourself both to a technical person reviewing your code, but then also as well to a recruiter who, you know, doesn't know about the difference in the code, but they can see, they can see for themselves that it's a different flow from the 10 other junior portfolios they've seen today. And, um, you know, it's junior jobs are the, are the only job in the software industry where um, there's more supply of devs than there are demand. Um, so it's that that's one of the ones where you can really make yourself stand out 
Yeah, that's that's a re- that's really good advice, I would say. Mm. And um, so, I mean, uh, onto onto your kind of days as a junior, you you, you obviously um, were messing about with computers from uh, from a young age and, and creating games and stuff like that. So I guess that's how your journey into tech started. What was your process from going to the point where you're a kid writing these programs to getting your first job in, in the industry? Yeah, so I basically did a a sandwich course at uni, um, which basically meant I did two years at uni studying software engineering, then one year in work, then then my final year at uni. So that year at work was really good because there were sort of companies at the time that took people on uh, in those you know, who were doing that course. So it gave you a variety of companies who were, who took on a student every year. And I managed to land a job um, at a company called Slumberger, which are an oil field sort of technology company based in Cambridge. And that gave me a whole year of working. We was actually writing Perl and it allowed me to innovate and I sort of automated a lot of their sort of manual systems. So I had quite a lot of freedom to, you know, play about and innovate and actually get some sort of real world experience. And that stood me in good stead for when I finished university and applying for sort of real jobs. So I guess from there, the first job I got was... Um, uh, with a company who made software for air traffic control towers. Um, so the software was for some of these kind of terminals that, um, you know, you see in air traffic control towers, like the touchscreen terminals. Mm. Um, so it was all written in, uh, I think it was Flash. And to begin with, I was kind of just fixing bugs and, and fixing problems, but I didn't mind that because it allowed me to get into the code and sort of really work out how it was working. I think the back end was written in C Sharp. So that's what got me started on the sort of .NET technologies. Um, and then from there, I, after about six months, the company started making people redundant. And being a sort of new into the industry, it made me pretty nervous about, you know, where the company was going. Even though they assured me my job was safe, I was still like, I think I was pretty rattled by, you know, five of the people I was working with just got laid off. So I went and managed to land a job with a company called Play.com, who got bought by recruiting. I don't know if people remember Play.com. Oh, I remember so Play.com. Yeah. In the sort of early and 2000s. Yeah, so from about the early 2000s till about, you know, I think they folded finally in about 2014. But let's just say through the mid-2000s, they were almost up with Amazon in terms of they specialised in CD and DVD sales. And they were keeping pace with Amazon at the time. Um, so that was a really great experience that got to work with sort of a, um, a web company who were pretty famous, worked with some really great engineers and sort of really learned the ropes of writing software at scale. So that stood me in sort of really good stead. Yeah, that's um, that sounds really, um, really interesting because, I mean, work, working on any kind of e-commerce platform at scale, it's what I'm doing at the moment myself as well. It's, it's a really interesting um, challenge. And um, yeah, the e-commerce industry is, is, is so interesting. And uh, I was going to say as well, yeah, working on air traffic control technology, that's that's pretty cool if a bit nerve wracking. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I'd, I think I'd be very nervous <laughs> about my code basically being used to rely on planes taking off and landing. I remember I actually got to go into the air traffic control tower in Belgium to fix one of, I was sort of sent there with one of the senior engineers to fix one of the sort of, uh, you know, side systems that wasn't working. So it wasn't the main system that people mm. use in like 
if anyone's imagining like you know planes land and stuff it wasn't like the main system for that it was like in a sort of secondary tower used for some you know ancillary things um but there was sort of a broken update in there so i remember being sent there with one of the senior engineers to fix it it was quite a cool experience getting to you know walk around the airport go up in this sort of um you know tower um it felt you know really surreal mm. to be honest um yeah interesting industry to work in um for sure that sounds um that sounds really cool and you're you're, you're currently um head of uh head of platform engineering and um a lot of the people that are more inexperienced that listen to this podcast won't actually be really sure what that actually entails so um c- can you explain a little bit more about what you do day to day and uh how people who are interested in that might might want to get into it yes yeah, so i suppose I'm more of a, in a managerial role at the moment. So I help set technical strategy and sort of um, steer what the different teams are working on. Um, but I suppose if you're asking what platform engineering is, it's kind of a fairly new discipline, I would say, that's that's becoming more and more popular um, with the rise of the cloud. So I would say platform engineering is really about sort of combining infrastructure and sort of software components to sort of solve problems so you can imagine it being like designing how so let's just say you've got a back-end microservice Um, you might have a software team who are writing the microservice itself um, that's gonna let's just say create payments so one team are writing the payment service and then the platform team are probably thinking about how these microservices are going to run on the platform, how we're going to keep it stable. So they might go, okay, well, we're going to design an architecture in AWS. We're going to have a load balancer. We need to provision a certificate because we want to use HTTPS. Then we need to work out um, how the traffic's going to get from that load balancer to the microservice that the other team are writing. So we might pick, you know, ECS for that, or we might pick Kubernetes for that, and then work out, you know, give the team, the sort of application team, uh, a nice experience to be able to deploy their software onto the platform. So that's kind of, you only really have a, have a need for like a, a disparate platform team when you sort of reach a certain size. So in the early days, sort of when you're in more in the startup phase, you'll probably, um, engineers will be doing all of that themselves. But when you reach a certain scale, that becomes quite inefficient. So you reach the point where you more need a platform team to um, have a standard way of doing everything and really reduce engineering friction so the engineers can just focus on writing code that delivers business value and getting that to production as quickly as possible. For someone that's early in their career, would you recommend that they go on a conventional like software engineering job first before they take the step into something like platform or is it the sort of thing you can jump in as a junior? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, it's not really one I've, I've considered. I'd probably say it's easier probably to start on the software side and the 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 reason i say that is there's there's quite a few sort of boot camps and courses and you can really get to the point where you can understand understand software and learn yourself a sort of junior software job and that tends to be an um a more of a supported path but the thing i would say is more and more um soft even sort of software engineers are having to manage the full stack so 
it was only up until say the last three years that form three really sort of separated off to the way we have now where we have a separate team responsible for sort of running all of the platform and teams that just focus on software so um like i was saying at smaller companies you can be in a position where even writing software you're actually responsible for deploying that working out how it's going to get into production debugging it um, which is probably not even a good place to start because it'll expose you to a lot of the other components. But what I would say is don't be afraid to learn about the infrastructure and, and, and what's happening around your software. How does it get deployed? How containers work? You know, um, how basic cloud deployments work because that will stand you in good stead. And I think really platform engineering, it's not about knowing every type of technology because that's almost impossible, especially in today's world where there's, you know, every cloud is innovating and, and developing all this, all this different tech. It's really about if you can understand the fundamentals of what's happening, then you can pick up any technology sort of fairly quickly. So understand, you know, how a TCP connection works, how HTTP works, how the, how the call is making its way to your software, how, how, how that software is running, is it running in a container, you know, basics basic building blocks rather than specific technologies on different clouds because then you can apply that sort of general understanding to any clouds technology if that makes sense yeah no absolutely that um that makes a lot of sense and so it's a yeah sounds like a really interesting kind of role for uh, people to get into very future proof because the cloud isn't going anywhere um so that's uh, that's really cool um for, for my next question it's actually not a question directly from me it's a question from the discord community so i'm gonna play you the uh the, the question now actually it's quite an interesting one um I'll, I'll let i'll let alex ask it or at least virtual alex ask it um but it's about um it's about contracting, basically. Uh, I'll play it now. Hopefully there's no technical glitches. Hi, Kevin. Um, my question is, at what stage should someone consider that they have the skills to transition from permanent to contract? Um, and, or, how does contract compare to building up as freelance, if that's even applicable in the space? Thanks. Okay. Yeah, so Alex, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I would say... Um, I would not advise going contracting too early in your career if you're going to go contracting. I think it's it's good to um, you know take your time. So you have a long career in the industry. You know, typically careers can last you know thirty years plus. So um, I know a lot of people see you know the headline figures around contracting and they can be sort of tempted to try and jump into that as soon as possible. But I think it's it's good to go somewhere and have a really good grounding. Um, and if you are thinking of contracting, then you need to be prepared to, to be able to adapt fairly quickly um, because typically contracts don't last very long. So, you know, maybe 12 months. Um, so you need to be the type of person who's happy to sort of change teams, change environments, learn new technology. Maybe that excites you. Maybe that worries you. Um, well, I actually think that the landscape's changed quite a bit. So I spent about sort of nine eight or nine years contracting and i really enjoyed it but i actually think the the landscape was quite different back then because i think a lot more of the industry was was moving roles sort of uh much more quickly and companies uh didn't tend to have a lot of focus on their existing employees there was a high churn rate between companies whereas i really feel like in the last particularly sort of three or four years 
Um, the tide is turning on that. Um, so a lot of companies now are, and maybe that's driven by the by the economy that we're in where salaries are raising and there's a shortage of engineers. Um, but a lot of companies are putting a lot of effort into sort of technical career paths, incentive, long-term incentives, really trying to get people to buy into the company and, and build a career there. So I actually think that is a, that is a good um, that is a good way to go. So when you're choosing a role, perhaps have a bit of an eye on uh, how you can progress a career at a company. Do they have technical career pathways? You know, could you spend you know could you spend five or six years at a company or longer and really build yourself a career and build yourself up somewhere? Because I think that's a lot a lot more doable now, and a lot more companies have those sort of processes in place than maybe they did sort of 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. And um, I've noticed that um, for me, I mean, anecdotally, I've noticed that at least in the UK, it seems like people are contracting less and more people are going perm now. Um, I don't know, maybe that's an IR35 uh, question, which is a whole podcast in and of itself, but it's, it's definitely an interesting trend I've noticed. Yeah, I think probably IR35 might be driving some of that your your uh kind of my uh, my last question for you is that uh you've i've noticed that you've also authored some books in the past and what what tips would you give people that want to get into the world of uh, technical writing because i saw that's something you, you you've got into yourself yeah so if you want to get rich don't do it <laughs> um so it's not technical writing is is not about sort of earning money so I feel like the the reason I did that is because I really wanted to deeply learn a topic. So I actually wrote a book on Terraform. I've actually produced a couple of courses on it as well. So typically, I really enjoy um, sharing knowledge with people and having that feeling that you get when you explain something to someone, you realise they've understood it and you've helped them get to that point. Um, so I took on the challenge of writing a Terraform book and explaining Terraform to someone in the way that if I would have learned Terraform, I would like to it to have been explained to me. So not just dumping someone with the details of, you know, what Terraform, um, you know, how Terraform works and all the, all the technical ins and outs, but spending like a chapter explaining why would a company use Terraform? Why is it important? You know, what problems is it solving? So I really think that frames the technology so someone can go, okay, yeah, we've got those problems. I can see why Terraform is a good tool now. And then you can build into, you know, how to use the tool. So, so yeah, I say if someone who wants to get into technical writing, you need to do it from the point of view of, you want the, the sort of challenge of learning a, a technology deeply, because when you start writing about something, you realize that you don't know it, you know, that well at all, even if you think you do before you start. Um, so someone who wants to learn a technology deeply, and really have that achievement to be able to sort of say, you know, um, someone's taken your book and they've used it to learn something and they get they get joy from that. Then, you know, if those two things, um, you know, uh, what's it called, entice you, then then it's worth it's worth doing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it, it sounds really I, I mean, uh, part of the reason why I asked that is I'm really curious about doing it myself, but uh, more on the uh, side of like helping helping people break into tech, like writing some kind of ebook on that. But uh, how, how long did it take you to write the books? Uh, a long time. I mean, I don't really know in terms of hours, but it was like a eight or nine month 
um, endeavour quite a few evenings in that as well. So, I mean, I wouldn't even like to guess how many hours of work <laughs> it, it was. But I wrote the whole book in Markdown using a platform called LeanPub. Um, and that's actually a really good platform because you can produce the whole book in Markdown. They don't take any rights to the book. And they take very small sort of cut of it as well. So, you know, you can put a price on there and then allow the the reader who buys your book to actually um, pay less if they want to. So they can literally go, okay, well, I only think this book is worth $5 or they can pay you more for the book and they can see what you're going to get as an author. So if they pay you $5, they can see that you want to only get $4 of that. It also encourages people to start books early. So what you can do is you can write chapter one of your book, publish it on LeanPub, and then maybe people can start buying it. You could put it on there for $2 and go, you know, this is a work in progress. You know, this is chapter one. And people might start reading it. They give you feedback and go, I'm really enjoying this book. I like to see chapters on this, this and this. So it allows you to really sort of get started, which is often the hardest part of these things. Um, get some early readers, buy the book at a cheap price, and then as you produce more chapters, you can then start putting the price up. Um, and those early readers benefit from getting to shape the book, and they've got it at a cheap price. Yeah, that um, that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, sorry if I missed any of that. Um, I just had to my my Wi-Fi completely conked out there, and I've switched on to four G. So I might be coming through much clearer now. Um, but uh, yeah, I've landed on the four G side. So uh, hopefully that's all come out all right. Um, but that actually sort of brings us towards um, towards the end of the podcast, actually. So um, firstly, I'd like to really thank you for coming on. It's been some really interesting topics discussed. Um, is there anything in particular that you want to shout out at the moment? Anything you're working on, or uh, any vacancies? at form three or anything like that uh, i'd say we've got a lot of vacancies at form three um at the moment we're we're not hiring um junior engineers but every other sort of type of engineer we are looking for so if you want to come to our website form3.tech forward slash careers you can find all of the open jobs on there and i'd say there's really great set of engineers here solving some sort of super challenging problems as i explained earlier so it's a fully remote company um so if you're interested in any of the tech i've talked about then feel free to have a look on our careers page or or add me on linkedin and you know message me and we can have a chat brilliant that sounds really good i'll uh, i'll pop the link to your uh, to your contact details in the description there for linkedin and everything like that but um yeah, that, uh, that all sounds really good. And yeah, thanks again for coming on today. It was uh, really awesome to speak with you and a uh, really interesting discussion. And I'm sure the listeners will have got a lot of value out of it. Yeah, no problems. Good to chat to you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Code of Career. My name's been Cam Blackwood and you can find all my details in the description. As I mentioned earlier in the show, please do check out the Discord and the Patreon. And thanks again for listening all the way through to this week's episode of The Code of Career. Happy coding and have a great week.